turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and following. It'll be on the screen behind me if you want to read along as well. It says this, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, that's Jesus, to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Consolation means for things that are blown apart to be tied together once again. It means for things that have kind of been scattered to be brought made whole and and brought together. It has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and what comes next is the song. We're in this series called The Songs of Christmas, right? And we've talked about the song of faith, and we've talked about the song of trust. This morning is the song of hope. So listen to Simeon's song. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Hope, you know, we hear a lot about faith. You ever notice how much the church talks about faith? We just need to have faith in this moment. We need to believe. And last week, Dave did a great job of talking about trust. And we talk about love. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, it ends with those three words. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But maybe the least talked about those is hope, right? We hear about the rest of them. And I thought about that. You know, week one of this series was kind of an unexpected father gaining faith. Week two was a trusting mother who just, I mean, honestly, to be Mary and to experience what she experienced, to be uh, accused of what so many folks have been accused of in the history of the world, and yet to be innocent, the lone innocent person of that thing that we all know about, you know? Uh, What a trust. Nothing bothers me so much as to be accused of something that I didn't do, and Mary survived that. Uh, Dave said that that trust last week he preached and shared with us that that trust was revolutionary, that it revolutionizes internal parts of us and external parts of our world, and he couldn't have been more right. This morning we're going to talk about hope. I want to tell you a story that is far removed from all of the things of today. I mean, it is so superfluous. It is so, uh, it's this deep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the gospel penetrates to the core of our being you know, the word of God separates between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It does all of this stuff. And I want to give you an example, an illustration that does neither and none of those things. All right. I'm a football fan. You know this about me, right? I'm from Michigan and Michigan, the University of Michigan has won more football games than any college in the United States. And its stadium is the largest stadium in the United States. That means you have to be a football fan if you're from Michigan. But in my family, football is disrespected. My dad dislikes it intensely. My parents, I grew up with this family that just sports in general was just, why are you spending your time on sports? You could be outdoors doing this or that. You could be reading this or that. Whatever you do, sports. Really? Who cares? You know, who cares? 
And so the fact that I'm a football fan is a little bit of a mystery unless you go back to 1989, January 22nd, where I happened into this room. I walked into this room, and uh, if you would go back in history and you would look at that date, it was known for one thing. It was the Super Bowl Sunday. And Super Bowl at that point was in the evening. And I walked into this room, and there were three minutes and 35 seconds left in Super Bowl 23. The score was 16 to 13. The Cincinnati Bengals were leading the San Francisco 49ers. Three minutes and 35 seconds left in the game. And I walked in and I sat down and I watched as Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and Roger Craig took the ball from their eight-yard line. And Joe Montana threw the ball this way and that way and down the middle, and they ran a couple plays. And I watched as after a game which had had very little offense, they marched 92 yards down the field. And with about 30 seconds remaining, with about 30 seconds remaining, uh, the defense split, and John Taylor caught his first catch of the day, a touchdown. And the score went from 16 to 13 to 20 to 16. And it revolutionized my sports life. I watched this guy named Joe Montana. He was from Pennsylvania. He played at Notre Dame, and he was called Joe Cool. And he was this guy who just seemed in the moment to have this clutch internal mechanism, this thing inside of himself that his team gathered around, and though they couldn't score points all day, in the final three minutes of that game, they came from behind and they won it, and he became a legend, and you know that probably as well as I do. And today we think of the 49ers as a dynasty back then, but that was the game that really set that all up, that made them the dynasty that they would become. I read later about the first huddle. You know, all of these Niners, and they're sitting there, and they're nervous, especially their left tackle, Harris Barton, talks about this, and you can hear him talk. I actually YouTubed this week uh, this, this whole series. You can get those things for free. You just click on the Internet, and, you know, you find this wonderful, uh, you know, fourth quarter drive. And so uh, I watched all of that, and I watched one of the interviews, and Harris Barton admitted when he came to that first huddle, you know, they're sitting behind the line of scrimmage, they got 92 yards to go, and he is scared to death. And he's thinking, what if we lose? What if we don't score a touchdown or don't even get a field goal in this situation? What will my dad say? What will my wife think? What will the national media do to this offense, which has been great all year and seems to have gone dormant in the Super Bowl? And they were all sitting there kind of jittery, and Joe Montana came to the Super Bowl huddle, that final huddle, and he looked across and he saw John Candy, a comedian, sitting in the front row of the Super Bowl crowd. And of all things, with all of these jittery people kind of going, oh my goodness, we're going to lose this game, he says, look, there's John Candy. And all of the 49ers just started cracking up, you know? 92 yards to go, and all of those yards forgotten. The score, they're down by three points, and even that isn't a big deal, because look, there's John Candy. What Joe Montana showed us in that moment and showed his team was a confidence, you know? Maybe they would win, maybe they would lose, but he had some sort of hope within him. And he offered that to the other people in this huddle. Now, just juxtapose that with the last few weeks. Do you listen to sports radio? I got off an airplane last Thursday, and I went into, I'm going to be delicate here, but I went into the men's room, And I saw etched on the wall what I hear all over eastern Pennsylvania. Eagles stink. (laughs) The opposite, right? 
I'm a Super Bowl fan, I'm a football fan, and believe it or not, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan and have been every day since January 22nd, 1989. I root for the Niners, and they were great for many years, and then they were losers for a decade or more. I mean, just honestly, year after year of losses, and I'm still a Niners fan because of this one moment of hope all the way back there. And, you know, today the Niners are pretty good. Over the last couple years, they've been okay. But, you know, for years, this drought, it didn't even bother me because I had this great history to look back on, you know. And I had this hopeful moment. This guy who had hope birthed this love of this game in my heart, and it's still there today. And then I get off the, the airplane, and I read what Eagles fans all over East Pennsylvania are thinking, right? And, I mean, you know, Andy... Andy Reid is one of the best coaches in the National Football League. I, don't, I have friends from Michigan text me to say, do you know Philadelphia just doesn't know how good they've had it? You could be a Lions fan, you know? I mean, hopelessness is found in Detroit. Whatever you think of all that, we're here to talk about Jesus. We're here to talk about Jesus. But when you think about that, hope is contagious. And hopelessness is contagious as well, right? So Jesus enters this planet's sphere. He's born in a little manger. And... All of these people are expectant. Everybody is hope-filled, waiting for the Messiah. Everybody knows that he's going to come and that he's going to set this world to rights. And all of the people, Herod down to the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all these folks, they're all gathered around to receive Jesus, and they all admire him, and there's this worship service, right? No. God has to surprise all these people. The shepherds are on the hillside, and they don't see it coming. The only people who really have any bit of hope that you see on a, net, on a, on a major level is the, are these international people, the Magi, who come from afar to worship Jesus. And yet the story we read this morning is of this one guy, and he's not a, he's not a big guy. He's just some man, Simeon. And he's the one of all the people who has hope still alive. Hope has died out for God to act in this moment. All of the people of the Middle East have kind of gotten accustomed to a messiahless, godless world. A world where religion is followed, but not necessarily the present God. And they've moved past this moment of hope, and they've kind of gotten in the the drudgery and the normalcy of life without God. That's what a lot of us do. We can identify with this. Hope, where did it go? Where does it live? Where, why did these people lose it so much? And what does it say that Simeon, of all people, just this guy who appears once in all of the scriptures, just in this story alone, he's gone anywhere else. We don't find him any other page in the scripture. He just kind of disappears after this and never appeared before it. And yet it was Simeon who had hope. He had something inside of himself still alive from all of those words in the Old Testament, all of those truths that had been kind of prophesied about. Hope, where is it in our world today? You know, we can talk about all the hope that's missing, whether it's hope on the national scene, whether it's a political hope that you had this past election, it may have been met or maybe it didn't. Wherever our hope is, we have to seriously think about where that's located and how to find it, what God calls us to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a guy who had hope, and there's not a lot of good reason for that. Dietrich died just before Hitler was overtaken by the Allies in World War II. It was April of 1945. He passed away, and he was killed by Hitler's troops. And as he was in prison, he wrote some of the most poignant writing, some of the most hope-filled writing you're ever going to read. Phenomenal brain from one of Germany's best families. His dad was the primary psychology of the German world. 
or the primary psychologist. He was from this family of intelligentsia. One of his brother-in-law or brothers worked with Albert Einstein and was a physicist. Another one of his brother-in-laws was a pastor. He was from all of this success, and yet he was denigrated down to this prison cell. He was brought into this little tiny cell, and yet he writes for us these words, and I want to read them for you about hope. He calls it optimism, but read along with me. The essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present, but it is a source of inspiration, of vitality, and hope where others have resigned. It enables a man to hold his head high, to claim the future for himself, and not to abandon it to his enemy. Think about this one more time. Let me read it once more because it's wordy. The essence of optimism is that it takes no account of the present. It lives in the future. It lives with the hope that things will be different later. They may be dark today. They may not be where we want them to be, but God is still present, and he may still act. It is a source of inspiration, of vitality, and hope where others have resigned. It enables a man to hold his head high, to claim the future for himself, and not to abandon it to his enemy. You know, when things go wrong, you kind of see this kind of abandonment that occurs. It happens in organizations and companies and churches and anywhere where something goes wrong, where we all distance ourselves from the problem, right? When we see something in our midst that goes broken, we say, well, that's not my fault. That's so-and-so's fault. I, know, I can't tell you how many different times Shelby and I have looked at each other when something's gone wrong in our family and said, well, didn't you? No, I didn't. Didn't you get eggs this week? No. Didn't you? No. Well, isn't that your job? No, I thought that was your job. You know, and we have these conversations, and they, they, they kind of fall apart into hopelessness because we are trying to distance ourselves from a problem, right? This is human nature. This is what happens. But optimism, hopefulness sits in the middle of it all and says, you know what? We can fix these things. God is still alive. God still wants to act. We know that there is the possibility of hope in our world. This morning, I want to talk to you about where and how hope is found. I just want to walk through a few different points about where hope is found. First, and they come from this story. The first is that hope is found in the small. Just listen to these words. I read them from, they're they're from Luke 2. But now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. It'd be better translated, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem. You know, when the gospel writers write these things, you've got to really think about this. Behold, there was a Byron Wenger. You know, really? Behold, there's a Byron. Behold, there's a John or a Bob or a Tom. Behold, there is a normal person. That's what this means. Byron, you're normal this morning. That might be giving him the benefit of the doubt, right? behold, behold, we take this normal person and we put him up in front of everybody who's going to read this story. Behold, here is Simeon. And everybody who reads this and would have known him, his mom, his sister, whoever, they were like, behold, there's Simeon? Who is Simeon? I mean, Simeon is a normal guy. What is Simeon? Why are we talking about him in one of the, the gospels that would endure for eternity? He's just a small person. He's not Herod the Great, who was the king of the time. He's not one of the Sanhedrin that we know of, 71 ruling leaders of of Jesus' day. He's not one of the intelligentsia. He's not Gamaliel, the great scholar. He's none of those people. He's just Simeon. And yet the Bible literally translated says, Behold, look at this guy. And why? Because of what's inside him. You know, I'm reminded of that story of King David, who was not a king at first, right? And God says to the prophet Samuel about David, The Lord looks on the inside. You look on the out. But the Lord sees what's inside. Behold Simeon. Be easy to forget him. Be easy to walk past this man as he's in the temple every week. Uh, Nothing special about him. 
You know, hope isn't found necessarily in the big. It's not found in the powerful. It's not necessarily found in the smartest among us. It's found where it's found. And we have to be people who are small in our own eyes to accept that hope comes from God and lives within us. We have to be small people. No matter what our bank accounts say, no matter how many decrees or letters are behind our name, no matter who we are, we have to be small to accept the hope of Jesus Christ. He is big and we are small no matter who we are, right? I was in Alabama last week checking out this ministry that has implications for us. A phenomenal chance for me to go down there and watch this thing called Lincoln Village Ministries. And the director of this ministry, who's just one of God's chosen servants, you can just feel it when you're around him, a man of great passion, but a normal guy, you know, a guy with a terrible past who God changed and brought into this leadership position. And he was sharing with us about his ministry, and he was sharing different principles about how to start and run and be effective in ministry. And it was just, it was, I was mentored. I was blessed by this guy. But one of the things he said is, you know, I was called by my board. He told this story. I was called by my board to meet with this group of businessmen. And there were, there were people in this room, and they had who, know much, who knows how much money in their bank accounts? He said, they all sat around in a circle, and my board was with me, and we gathered, and they said, just, Mark, tell us your story. And so he tell, told the story of all these kids who had come to Christ and been transformed, how education was being birthed in this urban community, and, and there was housing that was changing a whole community, all of this different stuff. And they said, well, what do you need? And he said, well, I need about a half million dollars because I want to do this project. And he laid out the the project, and he said, we just really need to trust God that he wants to work in this way. He said, maybe we should just pray right now. You know, we should should just drop to our knees and ask God, please, move. And these Christian businessmen, one of them says, we don't need to pray. What are you talking about, pray? He said, you only need a half million dollars? And he got out his checkbook. And so help me, Mark's telling me this story. He says, I'm going to write a check right now for that amount. And the tone with which he said it was one of hubris. It was one of bravado. It was was one of self-confidence. And he says, I can do a half million dollars today. Not, Not many of us in this room could do that, right? And Mark said, you know, that's the wrong sort of guy on your team. You don't want that guy giving you money. And he said, I felt the Holy Spirit just kind of hit me in the moment. He said, I I realized I got to say no. He said, put your checkbook away. His whole board sitting there. You know, that's one of those scary moments as a ministry leader when all of the people who are in charge of your books and your fundraising are sitting there and you're turning down a half million dollar gift. And he says, no, put, 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 your, put your bank account away. That's okay. He said, you're, you're talking about yourself. We're here to talk about God. We'll get there, but God's going to supply and he's not going to supply through you being overconfident about you. He's going to supply through small people who he can work within. That project got done, by the way. I was able to see all of those houses they bought with the money that did eventually come in. But he put this guy in this place where he said, you know what, the gospel doesn't work in the big. When you think you're big, you're not able to be generous. When you think you're big, you're not able to defend what God is birthing inside you. You're not actually somebody who can live this life of small dependence on the Savior of the world. Instead, what you're doing is living a life dependent on you. And hope is built on people who think they're small. No matter how big your bank account is, no matter who you are, we have to be small. We have to protect this thing called hope by living small within our own eyes and realizing that his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. God is big and we are small. That's important. We have to live this sort of life to have hope birthed in the middle of what is a difficult situation. Second point, hope is found in the darkness. 
This is from Luke 2 as well. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul as well. You know, Simeon lived and Jesus lived in a dark time. I don't know if you know this about the Middle East, but it was, it was oppressed by the Roman government and it was filled with factions. There were these guys called zealots who walked around with this knife and they had it in, under their tunics and they would go find a Roman soldier and they would stick it up under the hauberk and then they would run away after they'd stabbed the man. And there was all these little terroristic assassinations that happened in Jesus' day all over the Middle East. There were these zealots that did that, but then there were the Pharisees who were the fundamentalists of their day. They literally walked around with things on their eyes, some of them, that would cover the the peripheral view because they were afraid they might see a woman, you know, in the public. Oh, no. We might see a female person, and we might stumble, and we might fall. And they walked around with these kind of fundamentalist blinders like a horse from the 1800s. That's literally true. Then there were the Sadducees who had aligned themselves with Rome and they were the power brokers of their day. They were people who didn't have a lot of religious faith, but they had a tremendous amount of political zeal. And that's where the high priest family came from. There were the Essenes, another sect, another group that lived out in the desert and they eschewed all of the rest of these people and they lived apart from them all. And all of these factions were fighting. Simeon was a part of this. And yet he was a small part of it, right? It was a dark age with nobody knowing the truth. The words of judges said that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you can kind of picture all of these people doing exactly that. We know how to go. We need to leave sin behind and just live in the desert. We know how to go. We'll we'll leave sin behind when we kill the Romans. We know how to go. We need to legislate it and make it part of our, our governmental laws and get rid of it that way. That's what the Sadducees said. We know how to deal with sin. We need to make rules that make everybody a part of this kind of religious experience. That's what the Pharisees said. And yet in the midst of all of that, the darkness made inroads. You know, darkness, sin, it, it kind of creeps in, right? It doesn't knock on the door and say, here I am. It kind of creeps in in the dead of night. It's, it's sneaky. It's inside of us. It's small. It's insidious. It's constantly there. And what Simeon says about all that is that hope is born. And hope is born in the midst of all of that darkness. It's not born when the righteousness is, is, is birthed. It's, it's born out of the darkness and in the midst of it. To read again, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And this little baby will be a sign that will be spoken against. People are going to yell at this baby. You know, a few years ago, my brother went through the police academy, and I remember walking in his bedroom. I came home one day, and I walked in his bedroom, and there's a flak jacket. It just struck me. Somebody might shoot at my brother. I remember thinking, this is an awe-inspiring moment. This is a moment where I'm called to pray because my brother is in the line of fire. Many of you have had that experience with family members, right? Well, Jesus was born with that thought. Eight days into his life, he's here in the temple. And Simeon says, listen, there are going to be people who speak against this little baby. He's holding him in his arms, just this tiny little child. People are going to speak against him, but he is going to shine a light that is going to reveal their hearts. The secrets that are so endemic, the things that are destroying our race of people, Jesus is going to shine a light on those things, and he's going to provide a hope for it, and he is going to bring them into the light, and there's going to be a chance for restoration because of all that, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you, Mary, and it's going to certainly hurt Jesus, right? That's the story that we were a part of. And so hope is found in the darkness. One more scripture along with that. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
says Simeon, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is going to be a light that shines out in the glory of your people Israel. The darkness might be at its darkest, and yet the light is being born in this tiny little spark in the very middle of this world. You know, sometimes we think it can't get any worse, right? The world has kind of gone as bad as it can get. And how can hope come from a moment like this? You know, we went to a college, Tim and I, and I'm not going to talk about politics this morning. You don't need to be afraid. But we went to a college, and and most of the people who went to that college tended to be right-wing, I would say. And I remember going back in its history, and in, I think it would have been 1992, Bill Clinton was elected president of the United States. And I remember looking back at this chapel speaker, uh, the, the, the guy who headed up our college, and he, he got up to address the student body on a Wednesday, and he left his Bible on the front row, and he did it purposefully. He said, I'm not going to preach from the Bible this morning. We are, you know, goodness gracious, what are you going to preach from, you know? Where, where are you going to go with this? You know, we're, it got all of our attentions when we heard that. I watched it on a videotape. Many people watched it in person. And he says, I, I just want you to know from my personal perspective that we haven't lost hope just because many of us don't like who was elected. That was his perspective at the time. I'm not saying it was mine. But he said this thing, and he said, you know, the, the church is called to hope beyond politics. It's called to hope beyond the moralist age in which you might think you live. It's not called to just yell about all the brokenness. It's called to hope within it. It's called to be light in the midst of this darkness. And when we focus too much on the darkness, we lose that spark within us. And he says, so I'm going to leave my Bible in the front row, and I'm just going to give you my opinion. And I suspect he gave us more of the Bible in that morning, leaving, his, leaving it on the front row, but speaking what I think is probably the message of the Bible. We don't take our hope in kings and in emperors. We don't hope in chariots, as the psalmist said. We hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Where is our hope this morning? And if you are afraid of the darkness, you're missing. And yet there is this constant job that we have, all of us, to keep ourselves small first and then keep the darkness outside because it's not trying to invade our national scene nearly as much as it's trying to invade our personal one. This darkness can make inroads inside of our personal life. It can eat at us by what we watch. We have to shut off things on TV. We have to shut the computer that we're looking at. We have to not read certain things. We have to sometimes even walk away from people who are causing us to be tempted in certain ways. Whatever it is for you, you have to leave the darkness behind to keep hope alive within yourself. If you're somebody who finds yourself losing hope, If you're the person who wants to jump off the ship in the moment when brokenness arrives, believe me, one of the things you might need to think about is how big are you in your own eyes? How much pride do you really have? And second, how has the darkness, how has personal immorality or sin actually made an inroad into your life? How far has Satan kind of twisted himself inside of your personal being? And so this darkness is the second thing, and yet it's in the midst of that darkness that hope is born. And Simeon says, Jesus has come to bring light to a world that lacks it. He is coming to save us from our sins. Third point, hope is found in the word. This is going to be a little tricky. You'll have to kind of follow along with me because we're going to have to go back to an original language. But it says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I love this because Simeon is this guy who just, you know, he, he, he's ready to go. I went and saw Abra- the, the movie Lincoln this past week. Shelby and I saw it. It's a phenomenal movie. You almost never hear me tell you to go see a movie, you know. I, this is the first time in my life I've heard Jay Deering admit he went to a movie. That's really true. 
I, I don't think he's ever told me. I've gone, went to, and he told me, you should see it. And I said, I already did. But it's phenomenal. And one of the things I saw is this guy, you know, and this happens to presidents. You see when they get into office, their hair is brown or whatever com- color it normally is. You can see it with Barack Obama. You can see it with George W. Bush. They have one color hair when they enter the office, and four years later, it kind of changes, right? For me, I would have just lost my hair altogether. All of that stress, it beats down on those people. They have such weight sitting on their shoulders. And you can literally watch in this movie as the stress just kind of bends over this guy who's six foot four. He's a, a lanky, kind of odd guy, but he walks like this. And he has so much stress, it's damaging him. And I found myself having a strange emotion. The movie ends, as you know it must, right, at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. The war is ending or ended, and he has won all of these major points that he's been concerned about. And you just see this stress on his body. And when that bullet hits him, you know, and you don't see it in the movie, when the assassination is announced, I found myself feeling relieved for Abraham Lincoln. I thought maybe this was just grace, the amount of stress that he underwent. Maybe this was the way that God just blessed him to exit the scene. Honestly, I mean, I've never wished for anybody to be assassinated in my life, and I wouldn't have certainly wished for him or anybody else. But, but there is this sense that we can have such difficult lives that it's, you know, kind of at the end. Abraham had seen all, Abraham Lincoln had seen all of his hope kind of born to a fruition point, and he's, it's as though he walked away from the world in peace. Well, kind of similar to that thought, that's what Simeon's saying here. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I'm good, I can die. This is the end, I'm fine. Take me today, Lord. But not before this final point. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. If you went back to the Greek, there's, there's a word here that I've got to uncover for you. Promised is the Greek word rhema. There's two words in Greek for word. No pun intended. Two words for word, right? One is logos, and that kind of means the blueprint in your brain. Whenever Shelby and I go through a house, I watch my wife's logos work. She has this logos in her gourd, and, and she sees a wall, and it's opaque, you know? And she's, and, oh, that would be great. It would be orange if I owned this house. And I can just see what picture, uh, I can picture what piece of furniture she says that I would put in this corner, in that corner. My brain slowly bakes as she does these things, you know, kind of designing or redesigning a house. We were at some friend's house at a party last night, and she was said, well, I would love to do this. And there's colors going on the walls in her mind. That's logos. It's inside of here. Rhema is when it comes out of here, okay? And rhema is the word behind this. That's the other word in Greek. And it says, as you have promised. God promised Simeon something. He said, you're not going to die. He didn't promise him much, right? He didn't promise him that he would be a major change agent in the world. He didn't promise him that he would do anything absolutely remarkable. What he promised is, you will see something remarkable. Jesus is going to come. There's going to be this Messiah, and I promise you, I promise you, you're going to see this little baby that's going to change everything. I wonder how many babies Simeon watched go into the temple. You know, they didn't have blue and pink in that day. And I wonder how many little girls he checked out. Is that, is that a girl or is that a boy? You know, asking the mom. Because the Messiah was supposed to be a boy and he knew it. You know, I wonder how many people he was asking and how many times he was walking past children. People might have thought him a little bit strange, don't you think? 
And he was in the temple and he was watching for this chosen one, this new Messiah. And then finally, and he's probably elderly, we don't know for sure, but he's probably elderly. And at this moment, he sees this baby and it's as though God taps him on the shoulder. You should be in the temple today, see this baby, holds this baby in his arms. And there's a picture from the 1700s, a painting that one of the Dutch masters painted, just shows it so well, his face just all aglow as he sits there holding this tiny little child, right? And it's all because of a word. It's all because of a word that God spoke, not a word that man spoke. God reached into this man's life. The Bible tells us he was devout and righteous, Simeon. It doesn't tell us much about him except for he was devout and righteous. Let me translate that for you. He lived in a listening place. He was somebody who thought himself small. In fact, he probably was small in the grand scope of things. He was somebody who kept darkness on the outside of him and could see darkness birthed in the light because he wasn't personally ensconced in the midst of it. And third, then he had this word. God had spoken to him. Are we living lives that can be, where hope can be born? Because it is always born by Jesus speaking. I know that was a crass example at the beginning of this message because I have no idea what God, that God ever spoke to Joe Montana, you know? But what we do know is he spoke to Simeon and he said, you're going to see something the like of which the world has never seen. If you will wait for it, if you will watch for it, you will see something and it will alter everything. And he's there to bless this little baby because of a word. We need to be small. We need to be little. We need to be filled with faith, understanding the difference between ourselves and our God. We need to be faithful, keeping the darkness out here and not letting it build inside of here. And all of it because we need hope to be born. And that comes because God speaks. Because God reaches into our lives and he speaks what it is that he has called us to. You're different than me and I'm different than you. And he has different perspectives on each person on this planet. He has a favorite version of Josh Bitework. It doesn't look like everybody else's favorite version of Josh Bitework. Honestly, God has a perspective on you, and he wants you to hear it. And that's a word. He reaches in and he says, Simeon, please hear this word. And if you will live by this word, you will see the most amazing thing the world has ever seen. It'll be tiny. It'll be small. But it will birth the change that the world has been looking for for millennium after millennium after millennium of sin. Hope. Birthed in the small, birthed in the midst of great darkness, and birthed because God still speaks, because he is speaking his word into our lives today. Just a few more observations, excuse me, and then we'll go. First, hope is contagious. You know, that story about Joe Montana communicates that, right? When we have this hope about us, we change the people in our lives. If you're going to be a person who walks with a quiet time with God where he can speak, where you keep all of the darkness out and where you remind yourself every day how small you are, you're not going to wake up and think, okay, I'm going to wait for the rest of this world to bring hope to me. Instead, you're going to walk out the doors of your house and into your life and you're going to be a person who brings hope to wherever you go. And let me tell you, the people around you desperately need that hope. They need to hear about Jesus most of all, but they even need the look on your face that tells them that you know Jesus. Even before they hear the story of Jesus, they need to hear the person, need to see the person that you are. And they need to have that rub up against them. It's a blessing. It's a huge blessing to have someone who has hope come alongside you in a moment of darkness. And most of the people you're going to see tomorrow are going to be people who are struggling with darkness in their lives, who are going to have a lack of hope. And yet hope is contagious. Similarly, the opposite is true, right? A lack of hope is also contagious. Just listen to 97.5. Turn there tomorrow and listen to what they're going to say about the eagles. 
One person's going to say something bad, and then the next person. That last caller was exactly right. The coach is an idiot. The quarterback doesn't know what he's doing. We go on and on and on. It builds like a snowball, and hopelessness falls into our lives, and we walk a part of it. So be a person of great hope and offer it to the world as one of your, as one of your gifts. Second, hope is a preservative, not the sort you find in jam or jelly. You know what I mean. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. You are a city, a light on a hill. Don't be put under a bushel basket as the song goes. Somehow be a preserver of your culture. You are called to be people of hope. We are called to be people whose hope rests in Jesus Christ for the good of those around us. It changes everything in our world when we have this hope inside of us because it preserves the darkness from taking over. It keeps our world from being worse than it is. Some of us are not called to great acts. We're not called to great deeds. We're not called to do this or that. We're called to be something profound. We're called to be people of hope who in the midst of whatever it is we're going through have this spark within us. And we offer the world around us with this contagious preservative effect where the world is not denigrated. It's not going worse because of your hope and mine. Third, Hope is seemingly irrational. This is my favorite. It really is. And about 2001, I was about to start seminary, and I stopped by my church at the time, First Baptist in Spring Lake. I wasn't on staff, but I stopped in on a staff meeting. And one of my friends there was the guy who was a janitor. He was janitor. He was six foot six, and he had cleaned this church for 40 years. Okay, imagine he was kind of like a Simeon one of those older folks who had waited and watched a lot of things go on. And he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm headed off to seminary. I just needed to drop this off. He says, you're wasting your time. I said, what do you mean I'm wasting my time going off to grad school? I thought I was finally doing something productive with my life. And he says, well, the world has gotten as bad as it can get. Honestly, it's 2001. It cannot last three more years. By the time you graduate from seminary, Jesus will have already returned, right? Well, you know, Tom, that was my friend's name. He's since passed away. He, he, uh, he had the wrong perspective in one sense. His focus was a little off. It's 2012, and it still hasn't happened, and I graduated from seminary many years ago. And yet, in the midst of that, he had something inside him. He was looking to the future, and he was saying every day, you know, the real hope is not in what's going on at First Baptist Church or Parker Ford Church or any church today. The real hope is what Jesus is in what Jesus is going to do tomorrow. You know, the Bible tells us that, and I, I stood on uh, this mountain east of Jerusalem, Mount Olives with Dave. It's really funny. It's a place with a lot of pickpockets today. They tell you you've got to hold your hands like this, you know, and look over Jerusalem, but you've got to be afraid because you're going to lose your wallet if you, you just take your eyes off it for a half a second. But that's the place that the Bible tells us Jesus is going to land. The book of Zechariah at the very end says it's going to split in half. And Joel, the prophet, said that water of healing is going to flow. Revelation 21 and 22 pictures this, that, pictures this as a river that's going to heal the nations, and it's going to flow through the Mount of Olives. Joel says it's going to flow so far as to go to the first sin that Israel ever committed, that forgiveness that Jesus is going to birth, that came from the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, and that is going to be birthed ultimately in Jesus regaining leadership on this planet, not just distantly, not just in the sense that we all say he's in control, but one where he's close. Well, that is the hope. And my friend Tom, he may have been off in his predictions, as most people are, right? May t- uh, J- December 21st is coming up, right? You know, that whole Mayan thing or whatever it is. We're, yeah. 
you know, needed to do it. If you haven't heard this, you know, that, that is one of those things where the rock fell, the stone fell off, and the date ended where the stone fell, and everybody just kind of takes it from that. We love those sorts of things. We like hopelessness. The world's going to end next week. Yes, we get to make news on that, right? No. Jesus is going to be re- returning, and when that happens, it's going to be an everlasting world. It's going to be a world that doesn't end. And my friend Tom had it exactly right while he had his timing wrong, as almost everyone who predicts the coming of the Messiah does. But he said the hope is found in Jesus Christ. It's not found in your seminary experience. And he was dead right, by the way. Where is your hope? Is your hope in Jesus and the fact that he's returning? Is your hope in the future or is your hope in the worry of today? Do you find, your, find yourself downhearted every time you look at the news? Do you find yourself downhearted every time you look at the stock market's latest turn? Do you find yourself downhearted when you look at your kids or your grandkids and wonder what sort of world they're going to live in? Don't. They're going to have a world with Jesus just like you did. They're going to have a different posture, a different call than you do. It will be different than you've ever experienced. And yet Jesus will be there for them just as he has been for us every one of our days. The hope is not that we're going to have bigger houses by this time next year or better cars. It's not that we're going to have more money. We may have all sorts of horrible things happen to us. The hope is in Jesus. And the hope is in the fact that the future is secure in this Messiah, this little baby who Simeon held in his arms, realizing that he was fragile enough that if Simeon just dropped him, all would be lost. And on the other hand, he would grow so powerful that every person in the history of this world would have to deal with this one man, Jesus the Messiah. Hope. Amazing. In January, before Dietrich Bonhoeffer died, he wrote his final poem. He had finally gotten connected to a woman. He was a confirmed bachelor for many years. He was about to be married when the Nazis took him off to prison. He never did get married, but he wrote poetry for this woman, and this is, one of his, this is his last poem. Listen to it because it's so hope-filled. He would be hung just months from then, and he was held in this cold prison where he couldn't see his friends and family, and he had just walked through a Christmas where he wasn't with them, the people he loved, and he wrote these words. By gracious power so faithfully protected, so quietly, so wonderfully near. I'll live each day in hope with you beside me. And he's talking about God. And go with you into the coming year. You know, he didn't make it to the next year. That was it. There was no hope. If he was going to take hope in his lifetime, his hope had ended. But the world went on. Nazi Germany fell. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized what we all need to realize, that in the midst of the greatest darkness of his life, there was hope available to him in the person of Jesus who walked through that experience right next to him. That's your hope. That's my hope in this year. Join me in prayer. 